Do we have a crisis for childcare here in BC? Today, I welcome back MLA for West Vancouver Capilano, Corinne Kirkpatrick, and our special guest, Pamela Wahlberg, CEO of Alderwood House School. Last time I chatted with Corinne, she was running as candidate in the 2020 provincial election, hoping to become the representative for West Vancouver Capilano. After a successful campaign, Corinne quickly got working representing the people of her constituency and becoming the official opposition critic for children, family development, and child care. The appointment is fitting and no doubt in Corinne's experience as an entrepreneur, educator, nonprofit leader, and mother. Joining Corinne is Pamela Wahlberg, a successful child care operator with locations in Vancouver and two in Richmond. Pamela holds an early childhood education diploma, a BA from the University of British Columbia in creative writing, and a master's in early childhood education also from UBC. Putting her education to work, Pamela started Alderwood House School in 2008. On today's show, we'll be talking about childcare in British Columbia and learning firsthand, in fact, if we do have a crisis amongst us with these young children. So thank you both ladies for being on the show today. Thank you. So maybe we could start with uh, yourself, Pamela. Can you provide us, because you are an operator in this space and you've been doing it for almost a decade and a half, it sounds like, um, can you give us a description of what it's like to be a childcare operator today and how it's changed from 10, 15 years ago when you first started? Absolutely. I think one of the most striking changes that has happened um, in the last 15 years is that if I think back to 15 years ago when I was hiring a team for a new location, you would get 100, 150 applicants. And so there would be a lot of screening just to even decide who are we going to interview, how are we going to put in place. You didn't have the same turnover for staffing. Um, but because of the labor shortage right now, there are places that cannot hire staff at all. Um, our programs ended up implementing a training program specifically to address that. But the shortage of qualified staff means that there are thousands and thousands of centers that are operating without qualified educators or places that are leaving places that are licensed and available to be filled sitting empty because they don't have educators to meet the ratio requirements. Oh, wow. So we have a bit of a part of this issue is a supply issue, supply of qualified uh, care providers, if that's what they're called. I'm not even sure if that's the right terminology. Yeah, well, they're, so they're considered certified early childhood educators okay. or certified infant toddler educators. So depending on the type of care being offered, you need to have a certain amount of ratio and a certain amount of licensed staff to be yeah. able to provide that care. Um, there's not enough. Uh, a really compelling example is that in the first round of the $10 a day prototype programs, there was a prototype site that had funded $10 a day spaces and an entire classroom was empty because they didn't have the teachers to fill those childcare spots. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that are contributing to the labor shortage and that are contributing to perpetuating the labor shortage. But I think in terms of really assessing how childcare concerns around finding adequate childcare and safe childcare can be resolved, you have to first look at what's causing the shortage. And that's not physical space, it's actual people. Now you run a for-profit or it recently changed to a not Recently changed over. So I ran okay. a market-based program okay. and um, we recently just finished a sale where the assets were all sold to a not-for-profit okay. that was established by a group of community members and families from our programs and um, is now operating the programs. And what was the reason for that? The NDP were elected. 
Okay. Well, Corinne, there you're was you're just really... chomping at the bit to get in there. And <laughs> so we'll get Corinne's comment on it in a minute. Can you explain to us, is there a difference between the rules for a market-based or for-profit operator from a non-market-based? There, are there different rules as far as how you operate, like your standards of educators or ratios or anything like that? Before 2020, there yeah. was no difference between a not-for-profit auspice or a market-based auspice in terms of licensing regulations, requirements, fees, none of that was um, dictated differently. The only difference would be around the financial reporting requirements that has nothing to do with childcare, but right. has to do with the CRA. Um, and interestingly, research that came out of the prototype program that evaluated the quality of the programs actually found that the private operators within the program delivered higher quality childcare, mm. despite all of them being funded on the same model through the government. Um, and it, while very little actual peer-reviewed research has been done on that, the stuff that has been done that's been peer-reviewed has all shown that there isn't a difference in quality. It's just a difference in terms of how not-for-profit auspice and governance um, places their money. They tend to have less money put into facility because they have subsidized facilities, whereas and they have more volunteer labor, whereas market-based providers tend to put more money into the materials and facility because that's not subsidized. In 2020 or 2021, it, COVID's made it all a blur. <laughs> yes, it has um, for many things. Recently, um, Licensing Act was changed okay. um, to allow that if you're running within the school district and you're not for profit, you're not required to follow the licensing regulations. So they no longer have the maximum group size or ratios. And what's interesting around that is that it came out of the Baby Mac Law years ago, where um, Baby Mac Law was put in for safety, saying that if a program is in violation and they're operating an unlicensed childcare, which is against the rules, it's illegally operated care, um, the inspection reports will be investigated and posted online. Um, and one of the things that came out of that was that the Boys and Girls Club in the Lower Mainland was not operating legal childcare. And so they would need to continue operating, license their childcare programs. and somewhere what's happened is instead of the Boys and Girls Club licensing the programs, what happened was the regulations were changed to allow not-for-profits and school districts to operate outside of the licensing guidelines. Oh, well that doesn't sound very good. I don't know if there's a good or bad judgment on yeah. it. It remains to be seen. I mm -hmm. think that there's concern whenever programs run outside of regulatory guidelines because those are there for basic health and safety. It's universally understood within the sector that BC's regulatory guidelines are very minimal. Um, when you compare them to other provinces, we have very few standards for quality. And it's why you can see mm. such a range of quality within the programs. Um, and so removing any basic requirements is absolutely a safety concern, particularly when it's not easily understood by parents. And so parents can't make an informed decision. They're assuming right. that this is safe, regulated, licensed childcare. That's what I would have assumed as yeah. a parent of young three, three young kids myself. So just to summarize so far from what you see on the ground, Pamela, is uh, there's a deficiency in applications. There's an issue around labor shortages. Yes. And there's also a shift in, or there's not been enough attention paid towards the quality, the minimum quality of care or regulation to ensure that uh, all parents, regardless of whether they send their child to a, a market-based or community-based care provider, they should assume, like I would, 
that there's this minimum bar that's not really being met. You cannot assume that there's a minimum bar being met any okay. longer in childcare because of the amount of loopholes and changes that are being made depending on auspice and type of care being delivered. Okay. What the focus in BC has been is to make care universally the same price. That's the focus. That's the focus. Not it the care itself. Been, it hasn't been on quality. It hasn't been on training requirements for staff. It it's hasn't not. been on oversight or regulation or delivery of the care. It's been about can we physically build spaces and can we make them all delivered at the same price? Ironically, this is an apple and oranges argument because one of my programs delivers care from eight to three. One of my programs delivers care from eight till six, but those cost the same. But the government doesn't see that the same. They just say one, like they, the cost is the same, so it's the same service, but it's a very different service. Sure. And as a working parent, you can understand that eight to three might not work for you. Yeah. So would you, to summarize this, Pamela, and we'll get to yourself, Corinne, to summarize this, would you describe the current situation in BC as a crisis? I think it depends on how you're looking at crisis. If you want to look at long-term health and um, population well-being outcomes for children, mm -hmm. research says that high-quality care is the requirement. If it is low-quality care, if it is just a space to put your child so that you can go to work, you are going to see extraordinarily concerning long-term outcomes. And I believe that's where BC is headed. Uh, are there shortages? For infant toddlers and out-of-school care, absolutely. And depending where you are in the province, you need spaces. But we don't need the physical buildings, we need the people. Corinne, let's switch to yourself. Now, the BC NDP have been governing our province now since July of 2017. On April 30th of 2017, just before the election, John Horgan tweeted, for BC families struggling with high cost of childcare, help is on its way with our $10 a day childcare plan. So first of all, before you critique that tweet, can you just explain for the listeners, what is this $10 a day childcare? Pamela's given us a good description of how that's not the only thing that we should be measuring our success by or our metrics by, but what is this concept of $10 a day childcare that everybody keeps talking about? Um, it, it's $10 a day daycare, and it's, it's that for all British Columbian families. Um, and so there's no means testing. It, okay. is, it is access for everyone to be able to access quality and affordable childcare, which is, is great conceptually. Right. Um, but the reality of it is that it doesn't matter what the price of daycare is, what the cost of daycare is, is that if there's no spaces, uh, which is one of the challenges, and I can, I can tack on to some of what Pamela was saying, is sure. the three things that, that I think are in crisis is the lack of ECE workers, and we can talk about some strategies around that that, that haven't been implemented. Um, quality, which is actually from a pricing model with the NDP, is actually encouraging a reduction of quality. Um, and then there is the availability of the actual spaces. Right. Uh, and the more um, that they build towards the $10 a day daycare, they're actually creating more need or more um, uh, demand for those spaces um, without actually having the strategy of creating the spaces. Okay. And so a $10 a day daycare is fabulous. It's a great idea. 
but we really need to be able to create the spaces to create the ability to offer that. Okay, okay, that's good. I can actually yeah, illustrate some of that need because in the first year within the prototype project, um, one of our programs, which was prototype, mm -hmm. had a lot of part-time families, but they all wanted to go full-time, but they didn't use the space because they didn't require it. But when childcare is the price of coffee, but there's no requirement to attend, like there's an elementary school, I might as well hold on to it just in case I need it. Yeah, and sure. And so it actually ended up resulting in less spaces being utilized. Mm -hmm. Oh, fascinating. That's interesting. So let's talk about the NDP track record for a second. So it's been four and a half years since Horgan put out that tweet. Mm -hmm. How many British Columbians today, give us some stats on how many, how many are getting access to $10 a day childcare? How many spaces are available? How does that, is there, have we been keeping up with demand? Mm -hmm. um, are we in a crisis? We are in a crisis, and the, there, there's so many different issues that are kind of tangled together there. The $10 a day daycare is still running from prototype sites. And so that was 2017, and today we're still running prototype sites. Um, they've just renewed contracts for those. So prototype we're beta sites. testing still. We're still beta after testing. Almost five years. Absolutely. Okay. And so, and <laughs> Pamela probably can give me the exact number now, but I think there are perhaps 3,500 uh, spaces that are now $10 a day, day spaces out of 125,000 spaces in British Columbia. Okay. Um, so this is just a, a drop in the bucket, and uh, the utilization isn't there, and so you're actually. People are, there were no new spaces created. So they took existing spaces that were already there and they converted them to these prototype spaces. So there's been no additional creation oh, of interesting. spaces. Okay. So if you were a family that could afford that daycare, you were then being subsidized by about $12,000 a year for these $10 a day spaces. But it didn't allow the people who really needed those spaces to then be able to, to access them. So people who um, lower incomes, struggling to, to find childcare, being able to provide childcare and make it make sense to actually go to work because the childcare was not the same as what your income would be. Yeah. Those folks didn't have any increased access to it. Yeah. So it, it, it's a broken problem promise and and I don't see a roadmap or we don't see a roadmap in terms of how it's actually going to happen without addressing the other issues that we've got. Okay. okay I think there's good. a really big issue to think about as well Karen that I would add to that mm -hmm. is that um, the federal agreement which is funding the majority of these spaces yeah. um, wanted them to be inclusive spaces mm -hmm. but without any additional funding being put into providing inclusive care for children zero to five if a child has additional needs um, right now the choices to parents is if the child's autistic, they can use the autism funding for it to hire a BI, which is being cut, so that will no longer What's be an a BI? option. A BI, BI is a behavior interventionist who okay. provides support to the child so that they can participate within the program. It's a person, a yeah, provider. It's a person. Okay, okay. Um, or the child care center can charge the parent, and the child care center can hire somebody additional. Or you can go to the existing hub model called supported child care, which in theory should provide a person, but they don't have the funding. You... You don't get them. Yeah. Um, but under prototype, you're not allowed to charge the parents. So the response has been, if the child requires a, an extra support, mm -hmm. so a support aid or extra help to participate, you can tell the parent that this is not the program for you. So parents who have children with additional needs, unless they have gotten through the wait list and can get a supported childcare aid, they can't even access the space. Wow. So let me summarize this. There's What I'm hearing from the two of you, if I can kind of just summarize this, is three big issues here. One of them is a cost issue, which is this tweets about and what uh, Justin Trudeau keeps talking about, trying to mm -hmm. get this funding going for So that's the funding side of it. That's just one fa factor. 
The second factor is the quality care. You mentioned that, Pamela. But the third part that I think is the one that's most alarming is the fact that there's just, you know, people probably, parents, I would assume, don't care about the cost or the quality if they can't even get a space, mm -hmm. right? Like that's, in my world, I have, like yourself, I have three young children. And I, and so I, I'm in this world right now mm -hmm. where I have a lot of, uh, of our friends who are, I still have young children and they just struggling to find a spot. Like they, they probably, the question about how they pay for it or what the quality of care is secondary to being able to find a spot in the first place. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe Corinne, can you talk to some of the stats? Like what do the numbers look like as far as absolute? Because it sounds like when you when you listen to what the BC NDP are saying, it sounds like they're creating tons of spaces every year. Like It's like there's new spaces being made all over the place. And it sounds to me like parents shouldn't have an issue finding a spot for their kids. But I know on the on the street level, it's a real problem. So can you talk mm -hmm. to some of the stats, Corinne? Yeah, I absolutely can. <clears throat> and and uh, there has been a number of um, announcements uh, of, of new childcare spaces, but you have to listen to the words they use and they talk about funded childcare spaces. So okay. the NDP government is announcing funded childcare spaces. They're, they've created 24,000 funded childcare spaces, but those aren't operational spaces. So when you look at the period of time they've been in, in 20 2016, at the end of 2016, there were approximately 118,000, 119,000 spaces in British Columbia. Okay. Um, today, by their own records, there are uh, 124,000. So if you look at the actual creation of spaces, those are operational spaces and they're new spaces. And that is where the numbers 20... These are actually operating they're op spaces? They're operational okay. spaces. So there really has been... 6,000, 7,000 new spaces created in that period of time. Um, and the majority of those spaces, Andrew, were created in the private, in the um, privately owned uh, daycare providers. And what time frame is that, Corinne? That is from 2017 to um, this document that I've got from government is uh, the end of May of 2021. So we're talking four and a half years. Yes, four and a half years. Yeah. So yeah. Le le less, just a little bit more than a thousand spaces per year. Right. I, I can't imagine this is even keeping up with population growth. It, is it's it? not keeping up with population mm. growth. So we've got we've got a deficit from where we were five years ago in terms of actual spaces that are operating. And do we have any idea of what like the minimum is? This is along the lines of the same issue with affordable housing. Like, do we any, have any idea along the lines of? How many How new many spaces we do we need every year? Yeah. I mean, the population's growing, right? It's a bit messy because there's not a central way of calculating that. So each municipality, each region is doing their own independent childcare planning. And then government is doing some kind of childcare planning. I've spoken to some municipalities, they're not working on these things together. And so making a determination in how many you actually need um, but it, isn't is child a bit, care provi providing childcare services kind of a provincial mandate? Like, it is a it's a promise from the premier. You've heard that. So it, shouldn't it, the province know what those numbers are? Uh, they should know what those numbers are, and I'll give you an example of what uh -huh. other provinces do. Other provinces have a centralized database okay. where me as a parent, I can go in there and I can put my postal code in, and I can see that there's ten childcare centers in my area. I can see how many spaces are available, or if there's a wait list, I can put my name in there. 
I can manage that myself and governments have that data to know how long the wait list is, what region they are, what are the ages of the children that need care and other provinces can estimate then what the shortfall is. And then looking at the demographic expectations in different regions, they can make a determination. Here we have got numbers all over the place, they're tracked differently um, and there really isn't a specific number that is being targeted. So we know the numbers uh, that are of spaces that are available from a few years ago from your FOI as well as where we're at today. So gone from 118,000, 124, 6,000 new spaces mm -hmm. in four and a half years. Mm -hmm. But we have no idea how many spaces are actually needed. Mm -mm. Let's go to yourself, Pamela. Do you you talked about a minute a minute ago about the you used to get a ton of applicants to work at your uh, at your childcare centers. What about the applications? Do you see more applicants today than you did 10 years ago? From families? Yeah. Uh, COVID wiped out most wait lists. Oh, okay. Um, so it's starting to come back. I would say it's probably about consistent. Yeah. Um, we only have so many spaces, so right. we can only fill the same number of families. But I yeah. don't think that it's increased. I think that COVID has changed a lot of um, goals that families have in terms of working and the values that they hold for their families yeah. and how they want to live their lives. Um, I think that circling back to the data though, it's really important to understand that certainly the NDP have a data problem, but more specifically MCFD has a data problem. Mm -hmm. The way that they collect- MCFD is- The Ministry of Children and Family, family Development. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, the way that they collect childcare data is skewed. Um, the surveys that they put out to operators each year aren't reflective of how you actually deliver service. It shows that there's a very disconnect from understanding at the ministry level how childcare is provided, and so they're not collecting accurate data that can be comparable. Okay. While it's useful to know, well, here are the new space, this is how many childcare spaces are operational they aren't reporting the utilization rates so they're not reporting how many of those child care spaces are licensed mm -hmm. but the classroom is closed due to a lack of staff they also aren't reporting Amazing. how many child care spaces have closed so maybe they've created more but we've mm -hmm. had a hundred thousand spaces close but we're not reporting that and that data yeah that net number is critical the net number is critical and it's it's impossible to get that information so we are trying to get that right now to see what the actual net is and there have been a lot of child care providers closing um, but there have also been a number of child care providers who are ban abandoning projects that they were going to be moving forward with uh -huh. and this gets into a little bit of some of the other challenges which is as Pamela uh, mentioned um, a fee cap that government came in and instituted this past April. So a fee cap sounds fabulous from a parent's perspective because you're thinking, well, that's great and we're working on the affordability piece of it. But if you've got a provider who's just invested a million dollars in a brand new facility and sure. it includes meals and they're open yeah. from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and you've got another uh, operator who is working in an older facility, perhaps they don't provide meals, perhaps they're open shorter hours, Government is saying that both of those, if they're in the same geographic area, have to charge the same thing. 
or within a certain so they're they're in essence all of is this, this in order for them to get funding in order for them to get funding but in order for them to be able for the parents that are accessing that center to have access to a subsidy a subsidy right, right. and so government says and we hear that so if you're in, if you're in an affluent neighborhood maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't affect you because you maybe the parents are all able to afford so that's a problem because yeah. you would think that instinctively yeah. but if you're operating in wally and you have another program operating in southlands your rent rate is different mm-hmm. you're paying different property tax if you own the property right your costs of operation are different but that's not being factored in because the area is just here's the area for your fees so regardless of being in an affluent area, you could say, okay, I'm going to go without subsidy, but now I'm also having to charge the difference. And so you're really putting extra pressure on parents right. in a very random way. Mm-hmm. It's And if $10 a day is supposed to be applied regardless of income, there's no means testing, right. then it's creating a far greater divide with the have and have not system. Right, mm-hmm. right. And the uh, the providers that I've been speaking to since the fee cap came in, they are now reducing their hours. They're reducing the food that they're oh, providing course. to young people. Yeah. So if you're like, looking at that's if, how it, works. Yeah, if Minister Chen <laughs> says we want quality, uh, but we're going to put in a program that's going to reduce quality, it doesn't make any sense. It reminds me, as a as a sort of parallel, reminds me of the days when I was at university and we had the BCNDP get elected, and they put a cap on tuition fees at universities. And all the students got super excited about it. Mm-hmm. And what I saw happen, and it happened during my time, so mm-hmm. I, was, I was quite in favor of it, I guess, at the time, because I was like, I didn't have to pay any more on tuition fees. But what happened was the universities started cutting back on their spending. They made the classroom sizes bigger. They stopped painting the walls. You know, they stopped doing renovations. So this is, I think, they the, lost the, top the faculty. Yeah, sure. I was in the university sector right. at the yeah, time. They start, yeah, they, they, they lost great, pro, good, great profs are leaving because they wouldn't the pay same, them more. Yeah, it's the same thing. Is that yeah. inability for this government to understand operating okay. costs and that you need to be able to charge more than it actually costs to provide the service, or you've got an issue. So there are these providers not opening new spaces because now they're saying, well, it's going to cost me money for every childcare space I create. So we are losing now as well as those who are closing, we're losing the potential for these new spaces. And we know from government's own numbers that it is the private care providers that are the ones that are able to create these spaces the, the quickest yeah. and the most efficiently for the less money, for, uh, for the less cost per space. And every policy and program this government's putting in is, is disincentivizing that. Right. And the other issue yeah. that you have to look at, and this comes back to the data, is that when the fee cap is being applied, it's not recognizing the cost difference in providing infant toddler care, which is desperately needed, mm-hmm. and three to five care. And the difference is because the ratios and the staffing and the size of the facility that you need. But so as a result of the fee caps, people are electing not to create infant toddler spaces or not to run an infant toddler space. They could take an existing infant toddler classroom convert it for no cost to a three to five classroom, be able to bring in an extra four children, different ratio, save money, because you don't need as many teachers, but you've now let down the families in the community. You can keep operating because you can meet the government requirements for fees, but you aren't meeting the need of the families. Okay, ladies, this has been really helpful in understanding. I, I see it as a crisis, and you've highlighted these three issues, issue around funding and what effects that's having an issue around the quality of care you talked about, Pamela. 
And the most important one, it seems to me, is just the issue of being able to get into a space in the first place. So can we spend some time asking, talking about how we can make this system better? What does the, the BC NDP need to do to be able to make this work so that fa young families who need space, who don't have the uh, financial means to just pay for it all themselves, what do we have to do to sort of tackle these three things? So, um, who wants to go first? Do you want to? You're jump just in. jumping in. Okay, you want to get I'll going. jump let's, in. This is my it. job is to be okay. a critic, so yeah, I can. Let's hear it. But here I'll have some is, try some solutions here. Yeah. I also just want to say it's the, the regionally the smaller communities and northern communities they are the ones in most crisis, and oh, are they? and we need to look regionally at how we really? do. They've got the longest wait list. They've got the the biggest challenges. But um, so let's oh. look at um, ECE workers okay. and how we license um, uh, childcare providers. So MCFD needs to work with health because they do the licensing. Okay. Um, and there needs to be a way to recognize other credentials in order to be able to have people come in, become licensed, and work in these childcare facilities. Yeah. Right now, there's very limited kind of road or map to be able to become a licensed ECE childcare provider. Okay. If you are a, a very experienced, you know, 20 years as a grade two teacher, you can't come in and work in that childcare. You've what? got to be, there's got to be, Pamela's gonna correct me probably on I'm the specifics of that, <laughs> okay. If you are a licensed grade two teacher, you can apply to Alberta, get your ECE, transfer it to BC, mm -hmm. and BC will license you. But if you just apply to BC, you cannot get licensed to work with children. And so Are you, you kidding me? No, so you wonder, oh, there's a talent shortage. How can we be creative and innovative in order to be able to um, expedite having sure. good qualified people come in? Yeah, because so, i got to imagine there must be some uh, retired school teachers out there that are maybe in their 50s or early 60s who don't want the burden of having to teach at a school anymore mm -hmm. but would love the idea of maybe working half a day at a, a child care center there are and I've had child care providers call me saying my mom's retired and she wants to do this and and here's an issue so that's something that that we've been saying is you've got to look at recognition of mm -hmm. other credentials and we're not saying that there's that the, the, the ECE training is really valuable but there's got to be a different way to sure. do it maybe people can work while they're you know taking the the courses so looking at more um, creative ways in order to be able to recognize credentials um, and this would help address Pamela's first point which was the lack of supply of care providers in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And we've done that with many other professions, is that sure. ability to recognize credentialing and, and say that these things are equivalent. Um, another piece here is just an example, being creative. So if you've got an, uh, you know, uh, a childcare um, facility that in British Columbia under health can be licensed for 50 young people based on square footage or based on meters, um, you take those that exact same space and you move that to Alberta or you move that to Ontario, you can have 65 young people in that same space in Alberta. You can have 65 or 70 in that same space in Ontario. So if we would just look at reassessing and did, but space constraints in terms of how many uh, square meters they need per childcare space, one a slight change to that would allow right. childcare providers 
already existing child care providers to be able right. to open up additional spaces as long as they can hire people to, to fill I those see. spaces. So the idea there being that so-called like increase the classroom sizes in a sense like by five or ten percent. Yeah. Would yeah. If not you look at some provinces, you're able to license outdoor only programs. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So that way you can be at the parks and you can be at different areas and have licensed regulated care without needing to reduce an indoor square footage, um, but be able to increase more spaces. Um, there are some provinces and some countries that allow you to have the kids you know, outside half the time and you can have another group inside. So there's flexibility to be able to do that without reducing quality. But that's not something BC Can't do it here. Yep, can't do it here. Um, and other provinces, you can have your outside space can be half a block away or 700 meters away. Um, but here it's got to be much closer. It's got to be attached to the center. And if you're looking at downtown Vancouver, trying to find a facility where you can also have that required out, outdoor space, finding those facilities and funding those facilities is, is almost impossible. Yeah, so sure. these are, these are nothing is simple, but certainly some creativity and some bigger thinking would resolve a lot of the issues or would make, um, would make a, a, you know, a dent in the system at least and be able to move us forward. And how would you deal with the data issue as well like that's you mentioned earlier that uh, there's no centralized data i would have it it, it 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 can't be that difficult every other jurisdiction can do it is to centralize that system uh-huh. right now i would have to pick up the telephone phone leave a message for a child care um uh, the public or the provincially funded child care uh, groups they would then phone me back get my information and then tell me if there's a space available in the area or not it makes no sense. It's bureaucratic. It's this can all be done data driven, but centralized system, and everybody else can do it. So why can't we do it? The argument from MCFD with the data is that we have to be able to compare to 1986, to 1996, to 2006, and this is how it's always been collected. But the, my argument to that would be yes, if you've been collecting data for decades on the price of coffee, that's not going to help you when you want to go buy apples. Right. Okay, let's talk about the care side of it. Pamela, you highlighted the fact that I shouldn't just assume that there's a minimum standard of care. What would you propose that needs to change within a sort of a government policy standpoint to make sure that uh, parents like me can make that assumption? It seems pretty reasonable, isn't it? Well, and when you look at MCFD, it's curious that they aren't taking the family practice model that they say that the values of MCFD are. When you're wanting to put families first within the system, you need to be able to spend that time helping families make educated decisions that are based in research, not based out of special interest groups. Um, and so giving that information to families, so the, it's available. We have an internet now. We can put information online in a very accessible, easy to use way. Um, And so that there's transparency. Some provinces have quality rating scales and those are posted so that if you want to get more subsidized funding for your center, you need to be able to meet a higher quality level. This exists, it's possible, um, but that doesn't align with moving to the Ministry of Education where then teachers have autonomy and there is no quality oversight. So what we're in is this interesting gap of space where they're wanting to move childcare to the Ministry of Education. And in doing so, that will be a reduction of any quality or oversight. And actually on that note, Corinne, can you maybe speak to one of your concerns? I know before we had you come in, you talked to me about this mandate by the provincial government to phase out all market-based operators from the system entirely. 
Have I got that right? Yeah, there's an FOI um, that we pulled a decision note from um, uh, Minister Chan, um, and the signed off by Minister Chan, and it says that the intention is that they will make the private providers unviable in the medium term. Initially, they're saying, well, they're only going to cut the capital funding, so no longer are they going to be providing funding for space creation, although this is the most efficient space creation. Um, they're still going to allow the subsidies and some of these other things, but that's in the short term. Once we move to a $10 a day daycare system, those things aren't going to exist anyhow. So the writing is on the wall that these providers don't have a long-term um, uh, future in British Columbia, and it's impacting a lot of families who are running these businesses, women who are running these businesses, it's taken the value away from their ability to sure. sell these businesses. I mean, hasn't this become a bit of a, a great way for a lot of women to build a business for themselves? And, and look after their children at the same time. And so this is hurting women entrepreneurs. It's hurting by, by not addressing all of these issues. You're hurting women who can't get back out into the workforce. Um, and this is it. And the majority of, of employees in the sector are women as well. So th this is this is really a gender issue as much as it is anything else. The idea of childcare and creation of space as a feminist issue is a little bit of it's public relations spin, frankly, is that um, the majority of families who don't have access currently to subsidy are going to be two-parent families who earn a higher amount of income and there is more flexibility in terms of who picks up, who drops off. Um, and so childcare, yes, may enable the two-income families to work a little bit more. However, the single-parent families are already getting subsidy. They should have more subsidy, absolutely. but creation of more spaces isn't going to proportionately help the families most in need more. It's going to help the more affluent families who are not as much in need. Sure. But what it what will an harm, irony coming it, from it. it's very ironic, yeah. but the harm is that saying that this is a feminist issue to get women back to work, what about the women who are already working in childcare, who are needing to work at decreasing wages because there's a fee cap mm -hmm. and the centers where they've created their own programs are being shut down and unfunded. The realities are is that you can use existing resources like houses that sit empty all day by creating home-based care. And if you're worried about quality, you can have higher regulations to ensure that that's regulated care. Every town up north has a house. You can find somebody to be able to offer high quality care, but instead the focus on doing the large not-for-profit group centers means that you are actively working against women to create their own businesses where they can have flexible work schedules and well-compensated roles. Well said, Pamela. Well, that's great. Thank you for that. Corinne, to finish off with yourself, what could uh, listeners to this show and hearing this do to kind of help make a change? Uh, well, I think that a lot of listeners will think about who do, who do they have today if they do have childcare. Is that a privately owned childcare? Is it a public childcare? Is it not for profit childcare? And really speak out and tell government themselves that how important their childcare provider is, the quality of the childcare that they're receiving, um, and how they they want to continue and have the model that we have today. And every childcare um, uh, space in British Columbia is a public asset, regardless whether it's private or public or nonprofit, it is a community asset and we need to invest in that and parents themselves need to start to talk about that. Well, I wish we had more time. I would like to have you come back maybe halfway through next year again and get an update on how this is going. 
Um, Corinne, thanks for keeping fighting on behalf of children across the, the province and for this um, for making improvements to childcare in our province. And Pamela, thanks for all the good work you do with your centers and really appreciate it. People like you, we need you in our community. And I agree with your point earlier about uh, women entrepreneurs and we need to find an opportunity for them to be able to thrive and to help our children at the same time. So Pamela Wahlberg, the CEO of Alderwood House School and Corinne Kirkpatrick, MLA for West Vancouver Capilano. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks very much, Andrew. Okay.